Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, whenever you're listening to this. This is Molecules and Shit, and this is a science podcast. I'm your co-host, P-Funk, at P-Funk and Around on Twitter. And I'm joined by your host, Cookie Negra. Doctor? Sir? We survived yet another week. Yes, we did. Barely, um, despite all attempts by protesters to the, the contrary. Well, I would just like to report that I dropped my bottle of sherry on the floor and it smashed in a million pieces. And aside from the fact that I'm upset that it smells like a distillery in here, I have no sherry. Oh, so you have no, wait, is this cooking sherry or is this drinking sherry? No, I don't believe in cooking sherry. Cooking sherry is all salt. This is sherry. I do cook with it. Mm -hmm. I don't usually drink it, but it can be drunk. It's mm-hmm. real sherry. It was oh. a good bottle, too. Oh, no. See, liquor is, is very valuable in these trying times. Exactly. So I'm upset. <sighs> we actually do have to do a restock probably in another week or two. We've been slowly but surely working through our wine backlog. Mm-hmm. So a trip to the ABC is going to be in the, in the future. But I'm wary because people are seem to be protesting masks and health and living which is strange they yelled at us for protesting you know black you know black bodies being shot and beaten in the street but wearing masks and staying at home that that was a bridge too far for the white people well you know it's don't tread on me my rights <sighs> you're right to what infect everybody else yeah no I, I can't i can't ride with that sorry I really, I really did not anticipate that people would be revolting in the streets in packs. Mm. And what confuses me is some of them are wearing masks. That I don't understand. I don't. Don't ask me. I just. <laughs> I, I told you I don't understand people. That's why I'm a microbiologist. The bacteria makes sense. Yeah, consistent behavior. That's true. But I just don't. I, I don't know. After the messages we exchanged, like the the lady who had the the Bible over her face as a mask, and the woman who cut a hole in her mask because it was hard to breathe. Yeah, I. I, uh, I just. I I real I knew that people would get stir crazy. I did not realize that they would literally be be protesting their own well being. That and, is new to me. And then they're like AstroTurf protests too. So that's mm-hmm. the problem. Yeah. But then they get other people like ginned up. Well, no, they do. But that's the thing. Like nobody's running around talking about I want to go and protest. But then somebody goes, hey, you know, I give you 50 bucks if you bring 30 of your friends. or You know, like <laughs> they're mm-hmm. AstroTurf. <sighs> I, I just November cannot get here soon enough. I just need to know which way we're going to fall so that I can either abandon all hope or begin the long, hard process of, you know, recovering. I abandoned all hope months ago. <laughs> but you're still voting in November, though. Oh, yeah, okay. of course. Okay, but... just making sure. You're voting for Justin Amash, right? Who? <laughs> You heard about that that dude? Um, yeah. No. Okay. I don't know him. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just saying. He, he, why do this, sir? Why do this? I really, I, I, I don't understand why people. Th- I just can't imagine you're you're on an island.
All right, so you may have noticed a small hiccup in the audio, and I just want to say that it was because of Justin Amash. He fucked it all up. <laughs> he he de- he destroyed the whole podcast, just torpedoed it from the sky, and um, we lost about I don't know eight maybe eight minutes of audio. I <laughs> <laughs> would just have to recreate now for you guys now. So just act like you. It sounds like we did this for the first time. So. Um, in depressing news, uh, hurricanes could be slowing down due to rising CO2 levels. Yeah. Yes. And that sounds like a good thing, but it's not. Because it's not at all. No. Because the hurricane itself, the wind speeds are the same. But now it just, you know, kind of sits down like a lazy couch potato wherever it lands. And just whirls and whirls and destroys everything in its path. Yeah, a sit and spin is really not the kind of hurricane you want. There have been a couple of them in the last few years, and they are very destructive. That is not the way to go. Right. So instead of maybe waiting for uh, an hour or so for a hurricane to pass over you, you could be looking at, I don't know, five to six hours of a hurricane passing over you. Or maybe longer. Who knows? You have family in Florida. Have you ever been in a hurricane? I've never been in a hurricane and I think they have. I think they usually go to a shelter. I guess they've just been really fortunate. They've never had any like significant property destruction other than some like mild flooding. So yeah, I, I've I've been in a couple. Um, <laughs> some of them that made it up the the coast. And once I was on an island in the Caribbean, and the storm was two hundred miles, and the island was a hundred miles. Wow. And so you can't run. <laughs> nowhere to go how how long did it take that to go over you about like well actually i I was in puerto rico and it slammed um saint john first Mm -hmm. so by the time it hit me i was in in catalina which is sort of the eastern end of the island and uh it by the time it hit us it had broken down into a tropical storm okay but did but there was no like there's nowhere to go if the storm is bigger than the island, where are you going to run? You feel in all of it. Do you, yeah, and, where and, are you going to run? And the, well, the worst part is if the eye is just off the coast, you don't even get any reprieve. <laughs> well, it's worse if the eye is on the coast. So, but uh, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't too too bad. But you know, yeah. So generally, hurricanes will slam into a place, and it will slowly but surely just kind of move its way across that area, and so. You just have to literally weather the storm, and then you're you're kind of through it. You've made it to the other side, but now the storms and they're the the jury is still out. They're still doing research and gathering data to see if this is actually a re, um, a result of climate change brought on by human activity. But they're saying that you know if that is the case, that's another problem we'll have to face: is storms that just slam into the coast, and then you have a whole twenty four hours where you're just waiting for the storm to move its ass off of you. So that you can start rebuilding and rescuing people and such. So that's a dangerous scenario that could potentially happen because we like fossil fuels. Yeah. Um, it's true. Although everybody's staying home, it seems like we've we've done a, a, a little bit of good, but that won't last. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I mean, God forbid. It, thank God the, the virus actually hit us when it did. Can you imagine if this was during hurricane season? Oh Jesus Christ! And people had to re- <laughs> that would be awful. Yeah, people had to reshelter, or if there was an earthquake during this, like what? 
people really should not be protesting. They should be counting their fucking blessings. Uh-huh. Pretty <laughs> like, much. Honestly, just go home. Just, just stay home. It it could it really could be worse. Yes, indeed. It really could be worse. But yeah, so that's uh something horrifying to look forward to. And uh in slightly less depressing news, but still disappointing. Uh, there was a uh, symposium that was held. Um, I think it was. Let's see what the date was. I think it was a few days ago, and it's just, it was held on the anniversary of a document that was produced uh, seventy-five years ago called "Science: The Endless Frontier," and it was released by the first U.S. presidential science advisor, uh, an engineer by the name of Vannevar Bush. That's right, an engineer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have nothing to say. No, Nothing? Nothing. You're just going to let Not that go? You're just going to let him talk about you like that, no, dog? Nothing. <laughs> I, I have nothing to say. Okay. I love engineers. They're my favorite. Oh, wow. <laughs> All your, your best friends are engineers? Really? <laughs> yeah, some of my best friends are engineers. Wow. The shade. <laughs> So, okay. Oh, I'm going to pay for that. <laughs> this this document um, released by an engineer who is the U.S. presidential science advisor uh, was produced just two weeks before the Hiroshima bombing in 1945. And it was basically a, a blueprint for how to bring science policy and politics uh, in kind of synergy so that we can, as a country, you know, could win the science wars. And help maintain peace. So that w- that was kind of the the premise for the document. It's like what should we should be doing to encourage science, to develop science, and push it along so that uh, we can use it to not only win wars but also to you know help people and maintain peace. And this symposium was just talking about some of the the changes that have happened over those seventy five years and how the U S has fallen behind. And the guy who wrote, wrote this article, he attended that symposium and he just kind of pulled together like some key um, themes that they talked about. They didn't really have any major solutions. You know, it's just a bunch of people talking, but I just wanted to talk through those and see, you know, if you had any input or ideas about them. Um, So one of them was planning further ahead. And they were talking about how the U.S. needs a long-term federal science plan, one that spans many future administrations, a roadmap for science that is both protective and aspirational. Yeah, it would be great if we had that right now. Sure would. It, it would be nice if we had high-level scientists who actually had good connections and good relationships with, you know, local researchers, national researchers, universities. And, and yeah, that, that'd be great. Well, I can tell you that those do exist mm-hmm. um, because I facilitate some of them. Um, they do exist. But the, the problem is if... Uh, you, you can have a science advisor and he or she is really good at it. But if the administration is not interested in it, mm. well, it doesn't matter. And honestly, until COVID-19, science was not a priority in this administration. It just wasn't. They were doing their best to tear down all of uh, EPA and most other scientific um, agencies, especially if Obama liked them. So you can have good scientists, you can have good advice, and you can just ignore it. Wasn't 
maybe I'm just imagining things, but wasn't there a time when innovation sort of almost implied science? Like people were always keen to have innovation. And you would think that you'd want good scientific research authorities and they would have the ear of leadership. But I don't Uh, know where that breakdown happened. Yeah, I think, you know, especially when when it comes to anything that's computer generated or anything that's robotic. Yes, that Mm. used to be a big thing, um, probably in the 90s and the early 2000s. But, you know, if you get to the point where we're not paying for anything and all those scientists are just liars and it's all big pharma. Well, you know, that's true. Big pharma. I forgot about that. Uh Everything's big pharma. Yeah. So they they said that the the consensus with us today's levels of federal funding and emphasis on market driven research are imperfect. And the path from lab bench to application has a significant gap. Oh, yeah. So can can you talk a little bit about what what that means? To me, that that's saying that's not like they're saying that the people who are working theoretically in the lab that research is just kind of sitting in a desk drawer and not being moved to a practical application well yes and no um once you have the idea that everything has to be um profitable now you've got an issue hmm. because um you know at some point in our history the government did actually produce some things and figure out that we need to do this kind of stuff. And that went by the wayside. Now, DARPA has has been stood up, and DARPA's really not that old, um, mm-hmm. maybe a decade, uh, maybe a little more than that. And they, they sort of stand between the companies and the basic science, and they help to push things along. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for a long time we had we had all this stuff, but it was usually computer based, and there was a big market for it. Uh, a year ago, who would have told you, "Wow, we need a supply chain that will get us gloves and masks and swabs and tubes"? Would have never thought of that. No. But the government actually had a plan for it, and our president said, "Ah, eh, forget that." We're never going to need this. We're never going to have an emergency like this. This is ridiculous. Yeah, it's that weird cost-cutting culture. Right. That's that's kind of swept through uh, the private sector where it's just like, if you don't need it, cut it. If you don't need it now, cut it. There's no rainy day, really. It's just about getting the maximum, you know, profit to the shareholders as quickly as you can. Well, I'll have to take your word for it because I've never been in the the private sector, so. Yeah, that's just from... um, working in the private sector for a short, uh, a short amount of time and just kind of like reading like different like interviews and articles about how different companies are, you know, handling and managing costs and the way that they treat labor is a good indicator too. Yeah. It's just that whatever you don't need right now, is just dead weight. Get rid of it. And that's just a, that's not a good attitude. Especially when you're working in an industry like, you know, pharmaceuticals or medical supplies or things like that. But and the government is supposed to step in for things like that. You know, well, yeah, if you have a functioning government. But unfortunately, we have a country full of people who keep who decide to keep voting for people who don't like government. Mm -hmm. So how are you going to do a good job if you can't stand government? 
Yeah. Yeah. What was it? Uh, what was his name? Um, Grover Norquist. You wanted Norquist, to yeah. yeah shrink government until it's small enough to drown in a bathtub. Yeah. Um, well, Grover Norquist has not ever been elected to anything, but they sure elect a bunch of people who think like him. Exactly. So, I mean, mm. obviously we're seeing what it looks like when the government is incompetent. I mean, that this is basically it. Like, I, like we said, this is going to be the most painful civics lesson the country has ever had. If they learn from it, yeah. yeah. If they learn from it. Well... It's not a lesson unless you learn something. As I said, I'm more worried about us learning the wrong lessons than learning the lesson. Because, yeah. I mean, it actually sometimes it's better to learn nothing than to learn the wrong lesson. That's true. That's true. Yeah. So we'll see how the, the country, you know, handles this. But it so far, it looks like we're repeating a lot of the same patterns and it doesn't look like people are learning things. But... Uh, another theme that they talked about at the, the symposium was stronger global competitors. So in large part, thanks to the strat strategies laid out in this 1945 report, uh, the U.S. has led the world in scientific innovation and research for over 70 years. So they said, uh, this is Senator Chris Van Hollen from uh, Maryland. I uh, said the United States share of global R&D spending fell from almost 40% in the year 2000 to 20% in 2017. And during that same period of time, China's share of global R&D spending rose from less than 5% to over 25%. So in just 17%, China surpassed us in global R&D spending, research and development. Uh, yeah. um, that's not necessarily bad. Mm -hmm. Um. You know, once you get beyond the beginning, maybe your spending can fall, but not by that much. <laughs> well, 40% is a lot. Well, for me, it I, maybe you can walk me through it. It seems like it it's bad regardless because R&D spending is forward-looking, forward-thinking spending. It, so it's like, it where do we... Be. I mean, th that's true, but here's the thing. It's like, it's like spending after World War II. Um, at some point, you need the rest of the globe to step up, mm. and you need some partners. We don't need to shelter all, you know, all of it, not all of it. Right. Um, we can't have all the GDP on Earth. Um, so these countries that used to be third world who are now developing, they should. I mean, there's no reason why China shouldn't spend more, um, or Korea shouldn't spend more, which they do, or mm -hmm. Japan shouldn't spend more. Um, and for a long time, this was the only place you could do science. Mm -hmm. I'm okay with that not being the case right now. But dropping from 40% to 20%, that's a, that's a lot. <laughs> yes. And I, I think the reason why it's maybe looked upon as a bad thing is because we have not fostered the cooperative global environment or community. That would make it so that, yeah, we do want all of our competitors to be investing in these things and developing science because the worry is that, well, we're not going to be able to benefit from that or it's going to be more expensive for us to have access to that because we yeah. sort of burn bridges. That So I think that's the reason why it's kind of uh, concerning. I think if we had a better relationship with China, this wouldn't even be a bad thing. It would just be like, huh, maybe we should do a little bit more. But it's concerning because we've especially now and there's another story we'll talk about later where it, it looks like things are 
ten, getting tense and heating up between us and China. It's almost turning into like a some sort of it's like a semi cold war. But yeah, oh yeah, yeah. We, we'll talk about that a little bit later. That's really recent stuff. Um, let's see. So another uh, topic they talked about was expanding the tent. So it says the United States and the world as a whole have not been doing a good job at taking full advantage of the diverse pool of potential scientists. The STEM fields that may have found and nurtured many in, of the Europe of the future Einsteins, but we have fallen behind in cultivating new Marie Curies and George Washington Carvers. So this is diversity, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So they, uh, the scientific community is very good at spotting people who come through certain channels and look a certain way and know the right certain people and come through certain institutions but the people who are outside of those networks uh were not were not as good at finding and identifying and curating that talent yeah and mostly there's lip service given to it Mm -hmm. and you know basically what happens is unless you really truly distinguish yourself early Mm -hmm. um Nobody's looking at you. And then if you look like a winner, they can't throw enough stuff at you fast enough. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that really that really um, speaks to knowing how to play the game. And if you don't know how to play the game, it doesn't matter how smart you are. Mm. It doesn't matter what your potential is. If you don't have resources that help you along the way, that doesn't happen. Yeah. So, I mean, what what could be a potential solution, or at least, what maybe what's 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 one blind spot that we could kind of unveil or get better at? Well, I think it just it depends. You know, I know about academia. I know about that sort of stuff. I don't know about other environments. Mm-hmm. But what I can tell you is the the um, the assumption is. If you went to public school, you must be a moron because public schools are not worth anything. Um, If you went to substandard schools, you're probably stupid because, you know, if you weren't, you would have gotten out of there. Do you think that's still the case or that's just what the what we're working with, the legacy we're working with? No, I think that's still the case. Mm. I literally had a job interview in my hometown. Didn't get it, which is fine. Um, But. They basically told me during the interview, well, we would like to take more students from the towns, but they're all public school there. These public schools here are terrible. (laughs) At which point I was thinking to myself, I went to this public school, goddammit, and I have a PhD. So, you know, I really don't think that's the the issue. Right. So, So, no, that is still an issue that, you know. We want the best and the brightest, and the best and the brightest are supposed to look a certain way. They went to a, a, a really good private K through 12, and then they went to Yale, or they went to Harvard, or you know maybe they went to Stanford. But there are a limited number of schools that are acceptable, and then they have to have the right family. Uh, I was reading. I, I do. Uh, black and stem hashtag on twitter there was somebody there who literally she she was complaining she didn't get a job i mean she didn't get funding for something and they said to her well 
part of the problem is that she's first generation college and they didn't want to waste it on her because obviously she wasn't going to finish or whatever. What? Yeah. I mean, there, there are, they reviews. said that to her out yes, loud. They literally said to her, she could be okay, but you know, she's first generation. We've seen people talk about their grants being rejected. Like, this would be a good grant if it were written by a man. Whew. Okay. Yeah. So, none of this stuff has gone away. Um, I think it was quiet for a while. But people are just comfortable with coming right out with their racism and sexism now. So. I just. And, and also, it just seems so backwards to me. Because, like you said, if that's an institution in your hometown and they say the the public schools here are abysmal shouldn't you be trying to find some way to generate that talent locally rather than looking for some polished finished product elsewhere isn't that cheaper in the um, long run well it may be cheaper but the college's um mission is not to make the public schools in the town better no but you they could... do have some service requirements but you know it was very clear to me that they are not taking them seriously but uh, i guess what i was so... thinking i was thinking more like uh you can have like enrichment programs or some sort of summer internship where you try to at least capture potentially talented students um and maybe in middle school so that you can like foster that local talent well they used to have those i mean i certainly went through those but uh Again, this is not what they're supposed to do, and it costs money, and you got to hire people, and you got to get grants for it. And um, if that's not the mission of whatever, um, if it's NSF or NIH or whatever, like some people can get those grants and run those programs. But, you know, if I'm trying to get tenure, I got to do my own work. I can't care about the kids in the neighborhood. And mm. so that's that's also a kind of um, legacy that we have to deal with. Yeah. Oof. And okay, so the last topic on this article, um, and one of my favorites. We've talked about this so many times. Communicating science outside the lab. Truth and facts are central to the workings of science. However, the increasing speed of scientific breakthroughs makes it harder to understand and communicate science and its complexities. We've had this topic so many times on the show where you'll see a press release with some ridiculous claim or some counterintuitive claim or one that conflicts with something that just was released last week. And most of it comes down to the reporter or even the person who write, drafts the press release is not good at communicating the subtleties or the nuances of what the the research entails or what the study entails. That happens. However, like in my current position, I can't tell you how often I've had to look over the, the press release and say, nope, you can't say that. Or mm -hmm. yes, you can say this. Well, this should be stronger or maybe not this or whatever, because the communications professionals are not scientists usually. Yep. And the scientists are not communications professionals. And frankly, you know, I have a job. I don't want to be a communications professional. I understand that science communication is like the new big buzzword. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you, if you have it in you to do it, that's great. I don't need another job. Yeah. I think I do a good job of communicating the things I wish to communicate. Otherwise we wouldn't have this podcast. Um, but the idea that like 
everything you do has to be splashed on the the front page of something that's actually relatively new i would say that's a change over the last 25 years and it, where every week you know and our university did such and such and such and such and here's the scientist who did it and then you write about you know their in itsy bitsy like well we found one nucleotide difference and it's gonna save us all from covid19 it's like oh my god could you let them do the science um, and figure out what it means before it has to be on tv oh no i what you just described that phenomenon makes total sense to me money we're trying to get grants we're trying to stand out you could get grants before you had to be on tv every 15 minutes yeah, but this is for future. This is for future I grants. I don't think it's. I don't think it's about the grants. I think it's about the students. That too, future scientific talent. Yes. Not even that. Just the same way that they show all the basketball games at certain colleges. That's going to make students want to go there. Yes. I think and, we're actually you know, agreeing. Yes. Unfortunately, there was a shift, and I I watched it happen, where education used to be a process you went you learned you changed it is now a product yes i came in here i paid my money i deserve a degree and once your students stop being students and they start being clients or customers or consumers this is a bad thing yes but that's yes that's what you described that's why it is that way because you're always selling something because the funding is not to me, it feels if the funding is threatened or isn't guaranteed, you have to somehow secure more of it. And the way to secure more of it is through either tuition dollars or through um, sponsorships, grants. So you're always trying to sell what you have. Yeah, but if you sell it poorly, then you didn't sell it, right? Mm, <laughs> I just, if I you bought like, in their in their mind, if they if you bought it, they sold it right. Yeah, but I don't think that works. Mm. But here's here's the issue, though. Underneath all of this is not that you have to sell it, but that every state has decided that their state schools, we can always cut the funding we give to them because they can raise tuition mm. or they can get grants. And so the people who get hired at universities these days are people who help you write grants. They're yes. not faculty members. Right. They're not new faculty. You know, they're like, OK, well. We we hired a, when I was teaching at my last job, they hired somebody for at that time a ridiculous amount, you know, over 100 K for and her, all her job was to do was give workshops on how you can get your grants funded. Wow. She got you know, she was vice president of something or other, I, you know, because the state was like, no, we can't give you this money. We'll have to mm -hmm. we'll have, whatever. And so. All right. I'm not a good teacher if I'm writing grants all the time. I'm not a good scientist if I'm teaching all the time, but you're expected to do all of that. But like you said, if they just let the scientists do their work, if you you're being judged and you're being assessed by people who don't understand science. So they're thinking that's a spectacular waste of money. Why is that lab so expensive? Why are we buying all this huge equipment and expanding this lab? They don't bring in any money. You hear that in companies all the time. This department doesn't bring in any money. Cut costs, cut them, well, make mean, it smaller, make it cheaper. Life. Clinical yep. laboratories are considered a drain. Yes. They don't see patients. They don't, they don't bring in as much money as they should. And so the, the C-suite of hospitals are always 
trying to figure out what could be cheaper in the laboratory. And that's why you're seeing this boon in scientific communication because they it's it's a defense mechanism. It's like they're we continue to see severe cuts and continue to be interrogated about why we're spending such and such amount of money. Because in their minds, you don't produce anything because they, it's not tangible. We can't see it yet. It's just a paper. You know, it's just data. And so well, the scientific communication about- is like, well, let's let people know that, oh, this is really exciting that we found this one nucleotide on this one molecule. Yeah, I just I, I can't. Like, yeah, I agree. It's, I be- it's, it's I bad. I but a scientist yeah. because I wanted to be a scientist, not because I wanted to be a marketer. Right. Yeah. You but- know, like I get it if they have to have somebody to do that, but I, it just shouldn't be me. Yeah. But that's what happens when you weaken the government and the public sectors because government is supposed to set certain goals and say this is beyond you know roi this is beyond return on investment this is a good thing we should have this and we're going to spend the money as opposed to just having everyone you know fight and compete for the same you know small amount of measly dollars but this is where we are that yeah but uh we're back to our main segment, which is probably going to be our main segment for the next two years if this is articles to be believed. Uh, COVID-19. Uh-huh. So the coronavirus pandemic is likely to last as long as two years and won't be controlled until about two-thirds of the world's population is immune, a group of experts said in a report. Uh, yeah, so um, I know the guy who runs this, of mm-hmm. course. Mm-hmm. Sidrap, um, uh, Osterholm, he's a good scientist. He, he just, he really is a good scientist and he knows his shit. Mm-hmm. And Minnesota is one of the states of the union that is very good when it comes to public health. Hmm. So it, yeah, they're, they're incredible. Like I would meet with people and they'd say, well, in our state, so-and-so and so, and I'm like, everybody doesn't live in Minnesota. It mm. doesn't work that way everywhere else. Yeah. But, you know, Minnesota is, is really out in front when it, when it comes to public health and have been for a long time. It's not like now where New York has just had to bust through. And they were pretty good. But I would, I would argue that Minnesota was better. Mm. Um, so I think we, we have to think a little bit about the fact that um, pandemic doesn't mean everybody's going to die, everybody's going to get it. It just right. means that the pandemic pandemic means that it's in a bunch of countries. Yes. Um, so not every country will will be in the same space when it when we we talk about it. So yeah, we're going to continue to have um, cases. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the whole two years it's going to be like it is right now. Right. So just to for for the listeners, SIDRAP is the Center for Infectious Disease and Research and Policy. uh, And that is at the University of Minnesota. And I what I hear when I what I hear when they say that is not so much that we're all going to be in lockdown and stores are going to be closed and everyone's going to be wearing masks. But I really do think that's just for the next two years until this is actually under control, there's going to be this this tenor of fear around a lot of our regular activities. It's going to be a chilling effect. And I think that's what's concerning. Well, yeah, 
That is true. Like just uh, yesterday, I I saw an article about um, the CW shows. Uh, one of the producers, I think Greg Berlanti, or maybe not him, but one of the other shows uh, producers, they were saying that they have to rethink. Even after this lockdown is over, they have to rethink all of the stunt scenes, all of the intimate scenes, like how they stage and actors to be in contact with each other. They have to reassess all that. They can't just write it like they did, you know, last year before this was a thing, because actors will have concerns. Stunt coordinators will have concerns. You know, how do I know this person isn't sick? Have they been sick in the last two days? You know, where's anyone around them sick? Maybe they're a non, you know, asymptomatic carrier. This is going to be something that's going to be in the back of people's minds because they don't know that once you get it, you can't come back. They don't know that for sure. And you can't, it's not visibly apparent who has it. And we're still not testing at the proper levels. Nope. All of that is true. Um, But here's what, what concerns me even more than that is when we turn to, I'm going to have to know your medical condition before I hire you. Yep. That's what's coming next. You're going to have to take a COVID-19 test to get hired for anything. And we've, I mean, and that doesn't mean anything anyway. Let's say, you, okay, so let's say they want to hire you, you take the COVID-19 test and you don't have it. What does that mean for tomorrow or the day after? That you couldn't well, have it caught would, it? it would be an antibody test. It wouldn't be whether you have it now. It oh, okay. You're immune to it. Okay. But we, you, we just also saw that that's not for sure yet. Well, yes, because you can't just have everybody in the whole damn world coming up with a test that uh, nobody knows if it works or not. Oh, no, I mean, um, we there wasn't confirmation yet that if you have the antibodies that you won't get it again. Well, I actually don't think if you have the antibodies, you won't necessarily get it again. Right. You know, coronavirus has also caused colds and everybody has had more than one cold. Exactly. And so, you know, let's say you do take that antibody test and they go, cool, you have the antibodies. You're safe. That doesn't mean anything. Well, it can. So um, you may be it. What I what I suspect is is going to happen here is you get the antibodies, you're safe for a period of time. So mm-hmm. during the course of a shoot, you're probably okay. Um, but this is the same as you you remember as a kid getting shots and you got booster shots. You're supposed to get a tetanus shot every ten years mm-hmm. um, because the the immunity is not that long lasting. And that's sort of what happens when you get a cold. You get a cold early in the season. You probably don't get another cold that year. Okay. But the next year, you probably get a cold. Okay. And so, so I, you know, the the idea that we don't know if they're protective or not yet because we haven't finished. No one has finished the, the animal studies yet. And no one's been challenged with COVID proteins yet because all of this takes time. Right. Um, but I think what what disturbs me is I don't think I need to tell you everything about my health care. That's one of the first things I worked on when I, when I worked in the Senate was, you know, healthcare privacy. Mm. Not everybody needs to know everything about you. And I think that's where we're going. Yeah. There's that. And then also I think for two years for people to worry that they could show minimal symptoms and then have a stroke. Or every mysterious rash they're going to question. Or, you know, anytime anyone has a something up their nose and they sneeze, people around them are going to freak out. That's, oh, a, yeah. that's a long time to be in that state of affairs. And I think 
more so I, like i know that we're not going to be on lockdown i know we're not this this current state of affairs isn't going to be the same but just to be under that that tense atmosphere of fear is not good it's going to have long lasting damaging effects to the economy and just to you know society i i don't see us bouncing back right away it's going to be a long time maybe even longer yeah. than 2 years so you're pro- you're probably right you're probably right yeah, because I could see at, just adding sneezing into the the like super gumbo of racism and misogyny and xenophobia and uh, all of that mixed together. And it's like now if you're Hispanic and you're sneezing and just like, oh, no Hispanics in my store. You're like, I, I just I can see well, like people just like being we ridiculous already that racist. So, I mean... yes, but now it's just going to be like, oh, but it's for, you know, my own protection now. They have another well, justification for it. They didn't want us in any way, and now we're the ones who seem to have all of the disease. Yeah, that's why everybody wants to go back to work, because it's only us. Speaking of going back to work, uh, Georgia reported over a 1,000 new coronavirus cases on the same day its governor lifted the stay-at-home order. Okay, so one has nothing to do with the other. I know. Okay. I, I really, but, I saw this. I really hated this, this, um, headline because um nobody went out that's mm-hmm. how many te- that's how many cases you had anyway right wait 14 days and see what the numbers look like yes but that's my thing so you're right the headline makes it seem like this is the final result of him lifting mm-hmm. the the stay at home order but my thing is you've just released those thousand people into <laughs> the general population where most of them may have been staying at home now they're out and about going grocery shopping and such well, since they're only testing symptomatic people, they're not going out anyway. Mm, um, are they? So, they aren't. So I think the people who are going out are the asymptomatic carriers, which are the ones that will kill you. If somebody's coughing in your face, you know to stay away from their ass. It's I, the guy who's just walking around looking fine who can get you. I don't believe that all of those processors, not a single one has any symptoms. I don't. I just don't believe them that they're that responsible. We're like, oh, yeah, you guys should go protest, but, you know, I have a fever, so I'm going to stay at home. I don't believe that. There's at least a couple of assholes out there who know for a fact that they're fucking sick and are going to go out anyway. Uh, so, I suppose so. Yeah, so I, 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 I don't believe that because I, I saw the kind of signs that they had and the way that they were treating other people that they are protesting against. And these seem like a lot of assholes. Um, paid assholes. Yeah, some of them are paid assholes. So I, 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 I fully believe that some of them and some of them are wearing masks, which means they they do understand that it's a threat. And they went out and protested stay at home anyway. Yeah. I, yeah, you're right. That's so you're right about that. So that's what I got from it when I read the article. I'm like, oh, so you just taken those thousand people and just flung them into the into the wind. <laughs> no, it was a different thousand people. Mm. But that's all right. <laughs> um, I, I'm honestly everybody who asked me about this. I'm like, just start counting. Count the 14 days and then see what the numbers look like. See how fast it was spreading when everybody was home. And this this is a real experiment. So we look at the 14 days before they lifted it and the 14 days after and see what we find. Yeah. And I mean, that's why the Atlanta mayor was just like, "Uh uh-uh, everyone stay home. I don't care what, I don't give a fuck what he said. Yeah. And now the, the, what is it? The, the rapist member of the, 
Supreme Court is mm-hmm. looking into whether or not you can force jurisdictions to listen to what the governors say. <sighs> Isn't that already sussed out in the city charter or the I state constitution? Like, isn't that already laid out clearly? Who has jurisdiction and what powers the mayor or versus the governor has? Seriously, why are you asking me these questions? I'm, I'm just saying, why does he even st- have to stick his nose in it? But, because that's mm-hmm. what he was brought on the court to do. Yeah. Trump's bidding. So, okay, yeah, clearly. Or maybe, I guess maybe this is more Mitch McConnell's bidding, but okay. Yeah. Please register to vote and vote November. Um, <laughs> so lastly, uh, I wanted to get your uh, your thoughts on whether this was a truly good thing or whether this is just being overblown in the, the headlines. So Gilead gets emergency FDA authorization for uh, remdesivir to treat coronavirus. So um, just to clear for people, the food and drug FDA has granted emergency use authorization for Gilead's remdesivir drug uh, to treat the coronavirus. And remdesivir, I believe, was developed in, uh, originally to treat. Um, uh, where is it? Mm-hmm. I thought it was an Ebola drug. Yes. Yeah, that's correct. So as you previously used to treat Ebola, and I presume the FDA got some data to justify that authorization. Um, yeah, for an EUA, you do have to you have to present some data, and even Tony said that it it looks promising. He didn't say it was the be all end all. He just said it's the first step. And so from what I take from that, it says the intravenous drug has helped shorten the recovery time of some hospitalized COVID-19 patients. Uh, new clinical trial data suggests uh, without other proven treatments, healthcare workers will likely be considering its use. So basically, I think this is just to staunch the bleeding in, in terms of deaths. So people right. will still catch it. People will still get it. They'll still get very sick. But this hopefully will help their recovery so that even if the numbers of infections go up, maybe the deaths will come down. Right. And it's, it's only being, it's only been tested for those people who are sick enough to be in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I don't, they don't have any data available for, you know, if you get a milder case of it and if they treat you with it early, are you not going to get really, really sick or, you know, so this is, this is really the first thing that you hope will do some good. Right. Um, but no, this is not a cure. This is not a vaccine. This is just we might be able to save your life if you're you know, bad enough off. Right. It said Gilead released its preliminary results from its own study on remdesivir, showing at least 50 percent of the patients treated with a five day dosage improved. The clinical trial involved 397 patients with severe cases of COVID-19. Um, the severe study is single arm, meaning it did not evaluate the drug against a control group of patients who didn't receive the drug. Right. So it's not it's not blind. So it's not a double blind study. Yeah, this was like they were literally throwing things at the wall and it looked like something stuck. So they're like, you were dying anyway. Let's give it a shot. <laughs> That's pretty much it. That, yeah. that really is it. It's like we got nothing. You're probably going to die. Do you want to take this? And probably most people are like, yeah, sure. And they said that 50 percent of them after five days got better. So, I mean, that's something. It's better than nothing. Yep. Yeah. So there's your silver lining guys. See, it wasn't all bad. 
And I, I really should stress that this is really fast considering this virus is now five months old. Yeah. Um, you know, I think they, they've done very well. We figured out that that the chloroquine does not work, so the president mm. can shut up about that. Mm. And this may may help. And, you know, I'm sure Gilead has probably six more drugs that they're getting ready to, to roll out. I imagine every, every pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical yeah, is trying. They're just so. digging through the archives. It's like, what else do we have? That can, <laughs> what about that cure for the common cold we abandoned three, you know, three years ago? Where's that? Try that. I, that that's literally what's happening mm-hmm. because this is everything is so dire. So right, and they're like these. We have a whole bunch of patients who are dying and are willing to try it. So let's see what happens. Skip a few steps. It sounds like. Yeah, well, that's what EUAs are. This is the best we can do right now, and we're in trouble. Um, okay, and as soon as they get real data from real drugs, the EUAs disappear, mm-hmm. and they have to go through the regular approval process. Yep. Well, hopefully, it will continue to get good results, and maybe we'll have a consistent treatment plan that may involve it, or maybe some other you know concoction of drugs. But that's good news for people who are actually really sick from it. Um, so this was the story that I didn't get to send this to you ahead of time. I just saw it this morning, but it was what I was referencing when I was talking about um, the potential Cold War between the U.S. and China. Did you see the NIH axing the Bat Coronavirus Grant? No. So uh, this happened, I think, like yesterday afternoon. This says the research community is reacting with alarm and anger to the National Institutes of Health abrupt and unusual termination of grant supporting research in China on how coronaviruses such as the one causing the current pandemic move from bats to humans. The agency axed the grant last week after conservative U.S. politicians and media repeatedly suggested without evidence that the the pandemic severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus escaped from a laboratory in Wuhan, China. Ah. Yeah. The termination, which some analysts believe might violate regulations governing NIH, also came seven days after President Donald Blabney asked about the project at a press conference said we will end that grant very quickly so it's not like they could do anything about it (laughs) what do you mean he's still the boss of nih oh yeah yeah no this doesn't sound like the nih thought that this didn't you know have any value or could yield any benefits it sounds like it just came from the top top and said to cut it and so then they did NIH declined well, to comment on why it canceled the grant, which was in its sixth year. That's not good. Okay. Well. <laughs> yeah. And so I imagine there's probably a lot of scientific researchers in China that are very upset. And the Chinese government's probably had some investment in this project as well. They're probably very upset. Yeah. And I, uh-huh. so I saw a couple of other um, articles in like more political um outlets and they were saying that this could you know be the front end of an assault sort of on china to kind of be the you know the the one holding the bag well so china is the reason for the virus yeah. to do that so yeah. <laughs> so that's what this is about they said this is probably yeah. just the first salvo and the china did it look over there distraction campaign so that he can win re-election well and and it will work for his people because you know he he always leads with racism yeah 
So, and he's also probably mm-hmm. trying to do some sort of deal. And if he feels he feels like he can bring China to its knees, hmm. he'll try anything. And also, this oh just, god, we got to get rid of this guy. I, I know. And it also it just speaks to how it's like our fucking population just cannot do two things at once. No, like for example, if if let's say China had bombed a levee and it flooded a, a town, if it takes the government like. 10 years to get that town funded and rebuilt that's not china's fault anymore <laughs> no it really, exactly you, you know what i mean like yes china did bond the levy that is horrible that's a crime they should be held accountable you not being able to do the basic aspects of your job is also a problem and that is not their fault and that's our problem right we elect this prick <laughs> and and that's what's so frustrating about it because even if it's not most people are saying it is not true. Scientists are saying this is not the case. But even if China had released this quote unquote Wuhan virus into the wild, our reaction to it, our response to it is still severely lacking and shows poor leadership and poor preparation. But we can't talk about that because, you know, China. So right. I, I don't Well, that works for his folks. So, I mean, <sighs> but yeah, I need a drink. <laughs> I, I, I I know we 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 started off on Depression Alley and we we ended on you know Drunken Boulevard. So Ho- hopefully November will get here soon because it seemed to me like April was just the longest month in human existence. No, March was. April was bad. March was worse. <laughs> Jesus, I've never wanted spring to be over so bad in my life. Ugh, just. Yeah. Well, we'll survive. Yeah. Ho- well, you know what? Hopefully, I don't know. I really oh, don't. I'm know. not going without kicking and screaming. So. Yeah. <sighs> but uh, yeah, tell the people where they can find you. You can always find me at Koki Talks Trash on on Twitter. Um, if you want to listen for real science discussions, um, that would be at Koki Negra. And you can always find me uh, at P Funk around on Twitter, and feel free to send me your Zoom invites for happy hour so that we can just drink our sorrows away oh i want to do that yeah just you should uh i don't know if i have zoom but i have google hangouts and i have um whatchamacallit whatsapp at this point i'm pretty sure i have everything so yeah <laughs> yeah we just yeah just call me we should do like a virtual just happy hour just just drinking our sorrows away because apparently we we're not allowed to be in contact with people for another i don't know two years maybe <laughs> I still don't know when it's going to be safe to like go visit my my parents. Yeah, me either. I I don't know. It's gonna it might be a whole summer where we're just doing virtual barbecues and garbage like that, <laughs> or just stand outside and wave at them. Uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway. But anyway, right. <laughs> in, enjoy what's left of your week or weekend. Oh, we'll we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>